Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You don't have to worry about embracing uncertainty because, my friends, I can tell you that it is embracing you constantly. (laughs) And if you ever become concerned, like, hey, where's my friend uncertainty? (laughs) Well, she's right here. So I'm so excited to share this conversation with you today. It's with my dear friend, Susan Piver, who is a Shambhala Buddhist meditation teacher, New York Times bestselling author of, let's see, eight books. Her latest, Start Here Now, is a really cool take on meditation, but not just the practice of meditation, but the larger path of meditation, which not a lot of people talk about. Now, there's one really big difference about this conversation, too, and that is it wasn't recorded in our studio in New York. This was recorded live in front of an audience of more than 350 people who gathered from around the world recently for our annual Camp GLP celebration. So you will hear a bit of a different audio quality once I pass the torch from this introduction into the conversation. You'll also hear some pretty substantial audience participation because the audience was having fun with us and with the conversation and we were having a lot of fun too. One other thing I want to add in here, which is that one of the topics that came up during the conversation is what Buddhism is, what it isn't, uh, why there's such a a large resurgence in interest um, in the practice and the path these days. We also talked a bit about um, just sort of faith in general and what's happening. There's a, a phenomenon that's been documented over the last 10, 20 years which is tracking people who are leaving um, some of the more traditional Western faiths to become either what's known as the nuns, people who are spiritual but don't associate with any particular religion or faith. And a lot of those people also have been people who are exploring Buddhist practices. I realize I didn't come full circle in that conversation. We moved on from it. But I just want to be clear as you're listening that we're we're not asking you to pick and choose between and we're not saying any one faith or tradition or spiritual practice is better than the other. Um, We're simply exploring this interesting phenomenon and trying to see if we can actually figure out what might be going on and why the uh, interest in Buddhist practice and uh, the Buddhist path. So with that said, I'm turning it over to the larger conversation. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. So I was actually trying to figure out um, a do we know each other? I cannot remember. How do we know each other? It's so I was wondering, was it prison? Yeah. 
Um, was it that really bad trip? <laughs> uh, was it the Harvard MBA program that we completed together? In six months. <laughs> yeah. It, One of those. Well, we actually did all three in person. So <laughs> she's incredibly gifted. So one of the amazing things um, that, that I love about you, there's a backstory. So right now, Susan um, basically travels the world and teaches people how to meditate. And she's a, a beautiful, gifted teacher. And she writes. And she's a stunning writer. In a past life, you were a, a bartender in Austin, <laughs> Texas, when, yeah! when, when Stevie Ray Vaughan was the house band. I'm just saying. So in fact, she was the real brilliance behind him. <laughs> I still never miss that. Um, I don't think I've ever actually sort of stumbled upon this story with you of how you went from the world. And then she, you had a tremendous career in music, which from what I remember also happened because the owner of the bar that you were working in got arrested. He went to prison, or right. college, I mean college. <laughs> Harvard. That must be where we all met. Must have been. Can you fill in that story a little bit? What? Why? <laughs> yes, well, back in the day, I had no idea what to do with my life. None. I didn't go to college, I didn't know, I won't make this story too long. But anyway, I ended up, one day, just getting in my car and driving. I'm like, I'm just, I heard a Bruce Springsteen song on the radio. I was a cab driver. And I was in my cab, it was two in the morning, it was August, it was hot. I was sitting outside of a bar waiting for drunk people to come out. And it was like the late 80s and I heard Dancing in the Dark. This is a, not, I shit you not. <laughs> And there's this line that goes, there's something happening somewhere, baby. I just know that there is. And I, I heard that and I was like, I'm out. I'm out. There's something happening somewhere. And it's not here. It's not here. <laughs> so, see ya. So anyway, I got in my sister's car. I didn't even have a car. I'm like, can I borrow your car for a few weeks? I promise I'll give it back. I was such an ass. And I'm driving, I'm like, oh, I'll just go visit people. If I run out of money, I'll get a job somewhere. I'm, I know how to do lots of things, like drive cabs and wait tables and so on. And, and I'm, I'm one place I know I want to go is Austin, Texas, because I love blues. And I just want to go there. So I drive around for like for months, a couple months, and driving around. And I finally I spent some crazy debauched nights in New Orleans. It was awesome. And then I'm driving to, toward Austin. And I'm looking for the exit. And I realize, oh, I just passed the exit. And I try to catch the exit really fast. And I, I missed it. I ran over a, a sort of divider and uh, my destroyed the car. I didn't hurt myself or anyone else, fortunately, but my car was decommissioned and I didn't have enough money to get it fixed. So I lived in Austin. <laughs> this is where I live. And I opened the paper to get a job. Cocktail waitress wanted, and I had been a cocktail waitress in a nightclub before. Antone's, Austin's oh. home of the blues. Oh. Right? Yeah. Right? Oh. Yes, uh, people who know, it's lit, yes, people who know that place, know that place. And I go in, they hire me, it's like the best, I was so happy. And the house band was killer, and there were, then we'd have the guests, the Albert Kings, the Albert Collins, the buddy guys, the everyone's. And then the owner of the bar said, I think I want to start a record company. And he said, you don't work in the day, why don't you come help with the boxes? Oh, and I'm going to prison. <laughs> he didn't say that, but it so happened that shortly thereafter. So then it was, I was there with the boxes, and that's how my career in the music business got started. Yeah, and that led to 10 years, a decade or so, yeah. moving sort of like into all different positions in the music industry. Yep, and always at independent labels, but VP of sales and marketing, or you know, head of publicity, or until I ended up at a hip hop label in New York City, and. And that was because you're the clearer choice for a hip hop. Right? <laughs> I know. 
I am the demographic. <laughs> no, they, it was a label called Tommy Boy, and they like, we're going to start this division for people who are interested in spirituality. It was like a marketing play. It was like in the Enya days. <laughs> like, okay, people are interested in spirituality. I try to block those days. I know, right? <laughs> no offense to Enya fans. <laughs> And so he's, I knew him, and I'd recently become a, a Buddhist, formally taken vows, as you mentioned, and like, I want that job. I want to create that division for this company. And so I moved there, and like many great ideas, I got there, and we looked at each other, and we're like, what? How do, what does that mean? How do you create music for people interested in spirituality? So anyway, blah, blah, blah. Ended up not working out, and that was... But it was great. It was a great experience. So what brings you to med- You're in the music industry. You know, you're in New York City, which is like the center of the universe at that time for what you were doing. And at that time, you take your Buddhist vows. So first, what does that actually even mean? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, they hand you some Kool-Aid. <laughs> and you just drink it. <laughs> the, the vow... The ceremony by which you formally become a Buddhist is called taking refuge. And when I asked my meditation teacher, how do you actually become a Buddhist? He said, oh, well, it's called taking refuge. I I started to cry because just that notion of refuge, finding refuge, just I I realized how much I longed for refuge. Mm, From what? From confusion, from... uh, having no sense of somebody who knew a lot more than me that I trusted, just longing for that sort of wisdom that was real and deep and trustworthy and reliable and bankable and tested, and I longed for that. And all these other things I heard just ended up being bullshit. But the Dharma, to this day, more than 20 years later, I can tell you is provides very adequate refuge. Mm. But what's, uh, what's interesting to me is that it sounds like what you learned for was true wisdom. You're, you're looking for real answers. Does Buddhism provide real answers? <laughs> yes, it does. To Why take me ask? deeper into that. Okay. What, what do you think? What was, your, what was behind the question? I mean, because it seems to be, you know, Chokram Trumpa's famous quote, or it's not the exact, but, you know, you know, the good news, bad news quote. The bad news is that you're falling. No parachute, um, nothing. No parachute, to nothing. You know, the good news is... There's no ground. Right. And that seems to be, you know, something where I look at it and it's almost like a training that says, um, we don't know what the answers are and you never will, but the idea is we're going to teach you how to be okay with that. That's very well said. It's very well said. Yeah, it's, it gives you answers for how to find your own wisdom that is not separate from wisdom itself. I don't want to sound woo-woo or anything, but it's, yeah, I mean, there's some things about it that are very black and white, like there are with you know, many traditions. If you want to explore the nature of reality, like, if, like, do you die after you die? What happens? You know, the Buddha Dharma says this, that, and the other. Those are answers. I don't know if they're true because I'm not dead, but there's definitely distinct insights. And it's not just feeling your way, because that's sort of too loose. Mm-hmm. The thing that I love about Buddhism and the thing that made me go, okay, I'm a Buddhist is that there are no answers that exist outside of your ability to understand their truth. Meaning, I can tell you this is how karma works, which I don't know, by the way, but let's say I did, and I said, this is how karma works. It doesn't matter. You have to explore those teachings yourself. You have to bring them, mix your mind with those teachings, bring that uh, mixture into the world, and then test. And what you find to be true according to the Buddha himself, that's your wisdom now, and you own it. And what you find to be not true, you, just, you never have to think about it again. Mm. You have to make it your own. 
which has also got to be terrifying for a lot of people who don't want to step into that sense of agency. I think it seems to me that a lot of people turn to faith in the most challenging, darkest times in their lives. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons they turn to faith is community. But one of the reasons they turn to faith also is because most faith traditions have a clear set of rules to follow. Right. And those, those rules about this is right, this is wrong, this is yes, this is no, in times where you're really unsure can feel like an anger. Mm -hmm. You know, they can feel like, okay, I get to surrender a certain amount of free will mm -hmm. to the rules, and that gives me like a place to touch stone when everything else is spinning out of control. It tells me what to do. And the interesting thing is that Buddhism seems to be, at least through my experience of it, just almost the exact opposite. Yet, so many people, it, now that, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's very in to be Buddhist these days, or, you know, like, Buddha, Buddha curious. Right? <laughs> right? So a lot of people are turning to it, and a lot of people are turning from faith-based traditions, traditional faith-based, to getting really curious about Buddhism. And which makes me really curious what's going on there. And, and I know, like, we've had this conversation that, you know, Buddhism is, I guess, is, is not, or you wouldn't consider, and tell me if I'm if, if I don't, not remembering correctly, a religion or a faith. Like, you can be, you know, like, a Buddhist Jew or, you know, Buddhist uh, Muslim or Christian. How does that play, how do those things play together? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, when you say you can be a Buddhist Jew or Buddhist, Buddhist Christian or whatever, no. Almost. Okay. Almost. You can practice Buddhism in the sense of you can practice meditation, you can study the teachings, you can go on retreats, you can do loving kindness practice, you can do all of those things and be anything you want. A Jew, a Christian, an atheist, a Muslim, a ballerina, whatever. <laughs> it's fine. There's no conflict whatsoever. But the formal aspect of saying this is, I am a Buddhist, or I am a Christian, or whatever, those, you can't be both. It's, it's too confusing. It's, they're just different. So the thing that separates Buddhism from other faith-based traditions, and there is faith, but I'll tell you in a moment what I think that faith is about. The difference is that, and it's a very big difference, is there is no God in Buddhism. There is no external deity, although there are many uh, emanations of wisdom. And if you practice in a Tibetan tradition, as I do, you know, the joint is lousy with deities and iconography and so on. But those things are not considered separate from you. So there's no, it's non-theistic. So that makes it very different. So in that sense, you can, sure, practice the Dharma and so forth and anything else you want. But the path is different. Which path are you on? So, so let's circle back to it then, because if we, if we look at, there has been a huge, a huge departure from a lot of traditional faiths, and there's been huge growing interest in Buddhism. What do you think, what's that about in your mind? Because I know you have the answer. <laughs> and it's the right answer? Of course. So write it down. Well, it's right for you, and that's all that matters. <laughs> you know, it's a, I don't really know, except for, you know, if you, there's this growing, you know, there's studies that show that X percentage of people don't believe in religion, but they do believe in spirituality. And so for people who want to embrace spiritual values, like kindness and wisdom and compassion and generosity and interdependence, you know, acting as if interdependence was real, Buddhism is, you know, custom made because those are the values that it teaches and those are the values that it has spent the last 2600 years like testing like you know western science has tested mindfulness over the last 20 years say or 25 years Buddhism has been testing these spiritual concepts for like 2600 years and has a lot of really interesting data so many of us, I'm sure many of you, you want to be kind, you want to be loving, you want to live in a good world, you want to express your goodness and decency, and you want to feel that your world is sane, and that you are sane, 
and that what you do enhances the sanity of yourself and others. And that is what, to me, you know, the Buddhist path is about, quite remarkably, profoundly, vastly, extraordinarily. And, and that said, I'm not saying it's for everyone, but the you know, upsurge in interests, probably some combination of science going, hey, it's awesome, everybody, which people really take to heart, which is great, they should, and this longing for something real that is about the heart and that doesn't require you know, a stringent belief system or any belief system really because in Buddhism beliefs are considered an obstacle. Take me deeper into that. Okay. You know, the faith-based thing is very interesting because if someone in a Judeo-Christian and I guess a Muslim uh, tradition also, although I don't know very much about it, says, I have faith, it means something very particular. And you have you're said, this is, here's your document, this is what you should have faith in. And so please really try hard. And it's very difficult. I've tried it. And, but then there's a sense of, okay, I've been given these answers so that when times are hard, I can refer to this playbook. And, you know, if you yourself have investigated the playbook and have found that it is true and accurate, then you're a friggin' Buddha. And you should have that playbook and you should use it and employ it and that is your playbook. And that's awesome. But if there's anything short of that, like, well, this is what I heard, that is the opposite of faith. That is wishful thinking and some sort of willfulness. But real faith, this is my belief, or my faith, is not having beliefs, but going forward into your world anyway, your experience anyway, with a sense of openness and bravery. And then trusting what you experience and your ability to meet it. Fresh on the spot, boom, right now. That's faith in my mind, is faith in your experience, faith in yourself, faith in the moment. But beliefs are sort of the antithesis of faith according to this view. Mm. Does that make sense? What do Maybe. You think? Yeah, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really thinking on that. It's interesting too, because I just finished uh, Pico Iyer's book on uh, the Dalai Lama. And, what a beautiful uh, writer that guy is. Stunning, stunning writer. And um, it, it did such a beautiful, sort of like very real profile of him. And it was interesting because he was saying how a lot of the people who, who are now you know, in Dharamsala criticize the Dalai Lama for magical thinking. Hmm. Really? Yeah, for, because they're like, you know, you, you, you can't just sit here and wish. You can't just sit here and think that if you know, like, let's meditate more and more, and let's that that at some point, you know, the people who have taken over Tibet are just going to say, "Ah, oh, yeah, you're right. Come on back." You know that there's got to be a more aggressive stance that you can't that that's a form of denial. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the the cultivating intense acceptance, peace, um, based on compassion for the people who so many perceive have done you know done horrible wrong, that that's viewed as just, you know, magical thinking and mm. to, on the scale of delusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and granted, there are far more people who, you know, that don't think that, but there, you know, he was writing about how there is, there's a real deep, intense conversation around this and the fact that, you know, the, the path forward um, is, is not that thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it's um, so I'm trying to balance that with sort of like what you're sharing here, and um, and also again sort of like the moving away from um, faith-based traditions. But before we go too deep down that rabbit hole, because <laughs> we can start to spiral for mm-hmm. a while, um, mm-hmm. as we sometimes do. Uh-huh. Um, one of the tools that I think is really powerful that allows you to be in that place where the world is coming at you. You there's no way to lock down the future. There's no way to lock down the next minute. You know, that what, what is going to happen, you have some control over, but a lot of it you have zero control over. Some of it's going to be wonderful, some of it not so much. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that the truth of living in a state of constant uncertainty destroys so many people. 
um, and causes so much suffering. And that is a part of life in the world that we can't change. It is what it is. Although so many of us spend the entirety of our lives trying to make it certain. But I think one of the things is that out of the Buddhist practice is meditation practice, um, which you've devoted so much of your life to, you know, both in your own practice and teaching. And my sense is that in my own practice, which you've helped me with over the years, you know, beautifully, you know, the fundamental notion of it is to teach you a state of being and a set of tools to be okay with the fact that you have no freaking idea what's coming next. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's exactly right. And interestingly, to build on that, if you think, well, I'm going to cultivate comfort with uncertainty as a way of becoming certain, <laughs> it, you know, busted. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Right? It won't work. It's like, because I've tried that. And you think, well, it's so uncomfortable. It's so terrifying to be human. And, and, and we, you and I, and we here in this room, I imagine, are in the luckiest 0.0001% of all humans when it comes to, you know, being under threat. But we're still, it's terrifying. And, and, you know, I wrote, my last book was called The Wisdom of a Broken Heart because it is heartbreak. There's just, it was about heartbreak, but it's just heartbreaking to be a person. And one of the, so when you look at someone like the Dalai Lama, whether he's a magical thinker or not, or my teacher, Sakyong Nipam, or, you know, there, there, there's some really great masters in our time who you can go and find and meet and talk to. and. You know, they're not going to be around for that much longer, this last generation of teachers who were classically trained. Um, They're not upset. They seem very happy. And if you ever hear the Dalai Lama give a talk, you know, he's got a lot to be quite sorrowful about. But he's having a good time. So I asked myself, you know, if practice instruction is open your heart and keep opening it and let yourself be touched and lean in and lean in some more. How is it that they're not running to their room crying like I am every five minutes? What are they doing? And so my guess, because I don't really know, is that through their practice, they have found a way to have their hearts be this open and you, well, I'm not, I'll just say me. I, mine's open and close and open and close. Okay, I think I can try it again. Oh, no, no, forget it. It's too scary. But they're open. And they somehow, their hearts are broken permanently. And they've somehow stabilized themselves in that open state through the practice of meditation. And that's freaking heavy. But also freaking light. That's true. Exactly. It's like they're free. And so they are, have incredible senses of humor. They're so kind. They're so sharp. And these are the marks of the meditator. This humor actually is a funny, interesting mark of a good practitioner. And uh, very gentle and super sharp. So the whole notion of the meditator navel-gazing, and oh, my country has just taken over, and... You know, I don't know what the Dalai Lama is like or should do. Actually, I didn't meet him once, though. And I got to ask him a question, even. There is this fierceness. So it's not like, oh, wait, everything's good and everything's okay. There's this fire. That's what I think. What do you think? Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, because, you know, your teacher, Sakyong Mipo, I've only met once, and, you know, I had... Partially through the opportunity to sit down with him, we just jammed for an hour, and um, it was awesome. It was we had a we had a ball. I was cautioned not to challenge him in badminton because he would crush me. He's a serious athlete. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, you know, when I actually asked him at the end, "What does it mean to you to live a good life?" Do you know what he said? No, I don't remember. He said, "To be brave." (gasps) Oh, that's so touching to me. What did he mean by that? What did he mean by that? Night 
to find out. I, th I think it's exactly what you're saying. It's to allow yourself to have your heart broken. It's to step into the world and not run from it. It's to own the fact that we live in massively uncertain times with suffering all around us and to, to be brave in, in to walk into it and to not close your heart in walking, you know, and to, to move to that place. And the work is to continue to walk into that and then do the work to allow yourself not to be crushed and not to have your heart close um, through that process and to stay open, which that, that's what I, I got out of that conversation. You know, his whole idea is that now we are at a turning point in the world and culture and society and the decisions that we make now are going to ripple out for generations. Um, and we have to make a decision now Mm -hmm. about whether we choose to be brave, and if so, how will we prepare ourselves for that journey. That's what I took from it, which according to you, if that's what I got, that's my truth, oh, yeah. which is the truth. <laughs> that's so exactly like something I would say. <laughs> Boom. So meditation, I, I want to talk a little bit about the book, and then I want to open up to the yeah, room, great. because um, uh, do you, do you guys, are there any questions building here? Like, would anyone like to ask something? Okay, so we're going to open up to the room in just a second. You wrote a book now, this is your eighth book, mm -hmm. about meditation. When I talked to you like nine months ago, which happens to be an interesting time, right? This wasn't a book, was it? What was, how did this turn from you sort of having to get out of your head your thoughts on meditation to this must be a book and I want to share this on a bigger level? Well, I have a, a community called the Open Heart Project, which is, you know, anybody who wants to learn to meditate, and I send out a guided meditation instructional video every week, and it's free. And it's been four years, and that's, you know, it's... And there's some 12,000 yeah, or so. Yeah, now it's almost uh, 14,000 14, people 14,000 people, which would probably make it the large, one of the largest global meditation communities in the world. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Right? My website, susanpiper.com. Um, so I've heard, you know, I've given the instruction now many, many times. And I have heard the instruction many, many times. And I also, on the, you know, commercial, crassly commercial side, I'm like, I would like to get into self-publishing because I used to be in the music business and I know where this ship is going. And I, let me start a mailing list. Oh, what do I do? I'll teach meditation. And then it sort of took over my life, but I started the whole Open Heart Project to try to build a list so that I could someday self-publish because I want to keep writing and I don't want to you know, have to go to the man every time I want to write something. So, <laughs> um, you know, the man is great and when he's great. Um, so I, I, I have said that certain, I've given the instruction a lot of times, and at one point I was like, let me just write down all of these things that I say a lot. Because then uh, I don't have to say them. <laughs> Maybe I won't say them as much. And also, I just, I want to, you know, I want to just gather all these things together. And this will be my first ebook. And I wrote it, it was about 25,000 words. And then I, you know, serendipity has been the name, you know, I think our, our wasn't the name of our yeah, interview? Our, like, like a couple of years back. Serendipity was the Something name of like our, that, yeah. that's been still my life. I just, that's how it is. I ran into someone, an editor at Shambhala Publications, very kind. I like your writing, anything you're working on. I'm like, oh, well, I'm working on this ebook that I was going to sell. Oh, I'd like to see it. So anyway, I sent it to her and there it is. <laughs> I wrote probably twice as much, almost twice as much as what I was going to self-publish. And But because I'd already written it, basically, before I went to a publisher, the process could be fairly quick from that point. Okay, so here's my question. Okay. The instructions are pretty basic, right? What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, 
So, so this is interesting, right? Because there are a bazillion books on all different forms of meditation. Mindfulness is like hot, hot, hot now. There's a there's a magazine called Mindfulness. You know, there are programs all over the place. There are lineages around it, and there are people who have tons and tons and tons and tons of stuff to say. Mm. Um, the fundamental, the fundamental instructions are are pretty short and sweet. Yeah. Right? So what's what, what's the bigger body of like conversation around it that causes so much in like questioning and curiosity and the need for all sorts of nuance and stuff like that? It's yeah, a really good question, which I'll be delighted to answer. But first, if there's anybody here who would like to write a book, but is thinking, well, what do I have to say that hasn't already been said? Or there's so many books on that. I'm calling you out right now. Because does the world need another book about how to meditate? No. But did I have a book in me about how to meditate? Yes. But how many are there? A lot. So whatever it is you want to write about, maybe there are as many books on that as there are about how to meditate, but probably not. So please don't let that stop you, just in case anyone may be in that conundrum. So yeah, the practice instruction can be very simple. Although, you know, there are de details, the hands and the eyes and the everything. Um, interestingly, by the way, and I know you're a meditator and have a very steady practice, it's not at all uncommon to actually forget some of those details. I'm oh, sure, I know. <laughs> you're like you're sitting there, it's like, okay, it's simple. Okay. And five minutes into it, you're like, oh wait, I'm supposed to put my attention on the breath. Or, or, or my, uh, you know, my hands should be palms down or in some mudra, whatever it is that your practice is. So you do forget. It's very interesting and mysterious. You forget details constantly of this very simple practice. But the practice is more than something you do sitting down. It changes the way you are in the world. It's a path. And that's why I wanted the subtitle to be The Practice and Path of Meditation because, you know, science will tell you it changes the way your brain works. 2,600 years of Buddhist saints and gurus and yogis will tell you that it changes how your heart works. And it can be disconcerting and also very interesting. So although the core of this book and many other books is how to practice, really the interesting thing is how does it change you, and how do you meet those changes? Because they can be wonderful, and or confusing, and shocking even, profound. And so, you know, those things require some, some more data. Yeah, and I've discovered that too. Have um, you? Yeah, well, yeah, because there's, I think there's this big, you know, people think, well, the practice, it's going to make me calmer, it's going to resolve my problems, it's going to clarify everything. Mm -hmm. um, my experience is that what it does for me is it creates enough stillness that I can simply, I can see more clearly what I'm moving through rather than, you know, through veils. That doesn't mean that what I'm moving through is any more fun or easier sure. or more pleasant. It just means that I can see the truth of what it really is. And it puts me in a position to be able to then respond more to the truth of what's happening rather than to the illusion or the assumptions that I think are happening in front of me. And I find in daily life, I completely agree, like the practice, my daily practice, which happens every morning, has profoundly changed the way that I interact with the world 24-7 because, you know, that practice kind of follows me throughout the day. And awesome. I find myself, you know, in, um, it's an interesting example. This was long before I actually had a practice, but it sticks with me because I've been able to access this place much more readily. Years ago, past life, I was a lawyer, right? I worked for a big federal government agency and I was able to take investigative testimony, you know, with fancy people. So I was in Chicago in a cinder block government room and we called, you know, like a, a witness into this room and he was represented by a very fancy counsel. Mm -hmm. He was also a very famous counsel. And we're about five minutes in. I'm like first year on the job, wow. right? I have no business being anywhere near this conversation. 
And we're in there, and I'm like, you know, tell me your name, blah, 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 blah. Five minutes in, I ask a question, and the witness's lawyer, big, loud, very, <laughs> love to argue guy, and um, he's like, that's, you know, like, that's completely inappropriate, starts going off on me. He's like, that's not right, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, this is, you know, you're, you're harassing my client, all this stuff. And as he's doing this, for some reason, and, and this is funny that I still remember it to this day because this was going on 20 years ago, mm -hmm. um, but it stayed with me. It was almost like somebody, something zoomed out for me. Wow. And I looked into the room and I was like, there are two ways to play this right now. One is freak out, meltdown, I'm a moron, he's right, and just uh, lose it. Mm -hmm. The other is, dude's playing a game. Hmm, this is kind of fascinating. Wow. So what's the game? The game is big hotshot famous lawyer, government newbie, guaranteed every time he has this scenario, five minutes in, he sees if he can rattle the other guy mm -hmm. and just dominate for the rest of it. So I'm like, huh. So if that's actually just a game, he really couldn't care less. He's not angry at all. Mm -hmm. It's a test. Wow. What's the deliberate response to to that truth rather than, oh my God, this guy's freaking out, he's 10 times smarter and better than me and he hates me and, I, I, and I'm screwing up big time. Mm -hmm. How would I respond differently if that was the truth? That's amazing. And so what I did was, I looked at the court report, I said, off the record, I took the phone, I put it on the desk, I said, I'm representing the government. I determine what's relevant and what's not. If you have a problem with that, let's call the judge right now. Oh. I'm good. That's amazing. <laughs> Back on the record, we roll. Right, so being able to feel like in my daily life, I can withdraw that way yeah. and get more objective context to what's happening in front of me mm -hmm. and then respond more deliberately than reactively, it's probably been the biggest gift for me in the practice. That's and it, so it allows me this, it doesn't necessarily tell me this is the right way to respond now that I think I see what's really happening. But it allows me to at least to, to get truer data to respond to and then to not immediately just boom, um, but pause, just hit pause and say, huh, what makes the most sense here? That is incredible and so you and so, you know, difficult. And Chukyam Trungpa Rinpoche describes insight as like a flash of lightning at night that sort of suddenly you can see in a moment. And it sounds like you had this natural affinity for insight. It just suddenly there was this flash and something that was dark was lit up and it went dark again, but you held on to what you saw and you were able to then apply that. So you have a gift for insight, one could say. So, speaking about insight, I'd love to know if anybody else has questions or insights that they'd love to bring yeah. to you. Because this is a pretty beautiful and rare opportunity to just <coughs> jam with Susan. Hello. Hi. Hi. So, happy to uh, offer something and we both could you know too um, but I, I want to ask you can I uh, why do you keep practicing I keep practicing because uh, it has no 
never mind, never mind. I'm just uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I keep practicing this. I do believe in the tenets of it. You know, getting getting out of the mind and discovering something else and experiencing something else. But what keeps you going if it's um, um, it's it's faith in a way. It's truly believing and having the experience. What I like to say is to get up the thinking on it and have a, an experience that can be explained a lot of ways by a lot of people. Oh, so you did have such an experience, and you're practicing now to somehow explore that experience or stay close to that experience? Uh, just to, um, well, just to, uh, you know, I believe in the, the tenets of Buddhism, uh-huh. and I think meditation is the way to experience those. Uh-huh. Um, and there have been many moments where I think I got out of the thinking mind into whatever else, whatever, wherever else you go, and you're not controlled by the, the thinking. And is, uh, and is your practice a Buddhist flavored practice? practice, practice. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Well, I have so many possible responses to your questions. Um, the first, you know, what does it mean to have an open heart? This is a subjective question. There is no answer. Like, it means this, and it doesn't mean that. But so it's something everybody has to answer for themselves. What does an open heart mean to me? And you know, I would suggest it has something to do with the capacity to feel and the willingness to feel more than the capacity, because we all have the capacity. Um, but obviously, we all have to be pragmatic, and we can't walk into super traumatic situations and go, OK, I'm just going to try to feel everything. That would be silly. So some practice is very important as a support in that wish to explore open-heartedness, if that is someone's wish. Um, In Buddhist meditation, as I understand it, there is no requirement to get outside of thought, and no need to stop thinking, certainly, and no need to think good things or any particular things, no need whatsoever to modulate the thinking mind. So you don't have to do that if you had been attempting to get outside of thought. There is no such thing. Um, So just something to think about uh, without thought. (laughs) Not while you're meditating, though. And also, and I don't know if this gets at your question, but for me, in terms of my experience on the cushion, is almost always kind of boring. But my experience of my life has changed quite a lot. So there's just no telling when the traction will take, or if it will take, or what it will look like in terms of changes. But I would also further suggest that belief in tenets can create obstacles. And instead, to explore your own experience while you're sitting and in your post-meditation experience, which is what Buddhists call the rest of your life, to explore. And beliefs, as I said earlier, can provide can create obstacles. So I wish I could offer something a little more direct, like you'll see changes when you do this instead of that, but there is no such instruction as far as I'm aware. But I do wish you well. If you want, I can, um, actually it'll take about 43 more days. (laughs) Yeah, just do what he says. Yeah, so just get to there. Hi, I'm Martian, and I am a proud member of the Open Heart. And saying that as well. I find that infinitely better. Um, oh, is that Marsha? Yeah. Oh, hi, Marsha. Yeah. <laughs> hi. Um, I wanted to ask you about being kind to yourself. Because um, mm. it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently. It's something I struggle with a lot. I'm sure a lot of people here do as well. And just your thoughts on like what meditation can do to help you be kind to yourself or generally? 
Thank you for asking that. It's such a good question, it's such an important question, and it, it addresses an epidemic of harshness towards oneself that I'm pretty sure we all experience, even though I don't know you. Just this sense of tremendous aggression towards oneself. And we apply that aggression, you know, why can't I be smarter, why can't I be better, why can't I be shorter, taller, richer, poorer, more successful, more like this person, less like that person. You know, that's the litany that I have all day long, and I'm pretty sure it's not just me. And we bring that with us to our meditation practice, where we're trying to find some kind of peace, but to find it, we beat ourselves up and harangue ourselves, and like, you're not doing it, you'll never get it right, you're not good at it, oh, you suck at following the breath, or whatever. And, you know, unsurprisingly, beating ourselves up will not lead to peace. So, just FYI, don't do that on the cushion. I mean, we all do it, but it, luckily the practice instruction is see that, really see it. Not to change it, but see it. And in, in addition to seeing it, pause for a moment and feel it. In this Shambhala uh, tradition, it's called touch and go. It's like you feel this harsh thing coming up in your practice, say, like you suck at following the breath or whatever it is, and then you notice that and you let your attention touch it to sort of take its measure. Is it hot? Is it cold? Is it sharp? Is it far away from me? Is it right up in my face? Not to measure the validity of its narrative content, but to see what that thought feels like, literally like feels like. And then you let go. You just let go. Like that thought was a feather that you were holding in your fist and you just open it and just So you don't push it away, you don't shove it away, you don't incinerate it, you just let go. And then gently come back to your breath. That's the practice instruction. So there's no exclusion of that harshness. There's no lingering in that harshness. If it happens again one second later, just repeat the instruction. And then as you practice that on the cushion, perhaps when you're in a meeting, you know, telling someone you don't like your job anymore and you want to quit, or you're having dinner with someone, you want to tell them you're in love with them, or you're no longer in love with them, or you want to ask for something from a teacher, then, and you hear that harshness, you could apply that same technique, just see that, separate from it in some way, and then bring your attention back to what you're doing, your meal, your meeting, your whatever it is. So it's, actually, so such an obnoxious writery thing to do, but I did write about this in my book. Um, <laughs> you know, you can work on those things through psychological means, very valuable. And you sort of, in that way, try to find the, you know, if you were using the wave and particle analogy, a psychological approach can help you work with the through line of harshness, why it is, what sparks it, what diminishes it, and so on. And so psychological approaches work with those things as waveforms. And the meditative approach works with, them, works with them as particles, like the moment, pop that, pop that, pop that, pop that. And so these two together can be very beneficial in working with this un extreme unkindness toward oneself. Usually both are required, some measure of both. So anyway, please be nice to yourself, Marsha, because you're awesome. I've always looked up to you as a teacher and mentor. You were on staff in a good life project when I was in it a few years ago. And we were eating dinner at uh, Jonathan's house maybe a year or two ago, and you were telling this ridiculous story that made me so appreciate you as a teacher because I was kind of hitting a plateau in my own practice and beating myself up over it and not feeling like I was making progress. And you told this ridiculous story about being on retreat and replaying the entire movie Step Brothers in your head. No, no, 40-year-old virgin. Oh, it's 40-year-old virgin. <laughs> Come on, get your facts straight there. Did you tell that really quick? I felt that 
that was the most compassionate thing I heard from another meditation teacher. Oh god, that's so funny. I'd be delighted to share that story. <laughs> I love the movie Forty Year Old Version. <laughs> I've probably seen it like ten times. I love it. And I was on a long retreat. It was like a thirty day retreat. Practice seven in the morning till nine at night. You know, with walking meditations and whatever. But basically, you're you're on your hiney, and I was like, this sucks. I, I, I've just run through everything. I've ex- I hate it. I, I'm so bored. This is so hard. It's like 9 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> On the first day. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, I cannot take this. The person next to me is breathing weirdly and is bothering me. <laughs> Why do they have to breathe at all? <laughs> and I'm like, I know what I'll do. I'm gonna watch a friggin' movie. <laughs> and I like, I could watch every frame of 40-year-old virgin because I've seen it so many times. So I just started watching it. <laughs> and I would come to the really funny parts and I would laugh and I'd <laughs> like, fuck it, I, I just, <laughs> but you know, don't do that. <laughs> and before, just jump in really quick, there's one point that that reinforces also that breeze over really quickly, but I think it's so important, which is that, because my experience on the mat also is, there's nothing magical that happens when I sit. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's mythology that like the white light comes when you sit in meditation and everything is good in the world and you start to float and everything, you feel amazing, <laughs> right? And then you go out into life and then you, you face reality. You, the truth is, sitting is really normal, regular experience, at least for me mm-hmm. and it seems like for you too. It's not like the magic doesn't happen on the mat for mm-hmm. me. It happens in almost like a hundred barely perceptible ways as you move through the rest of the day. And I think it's just, it's such a good expectation, not even expectation, but just an invitation to explore that possibility for you is to not judge whether the meditation is doing what it needs to do based on what's happening on the mat, but to actually look at how your life is unfolding over a period of years. Absolutely. I totally agree. And, you know, why? Just sitting on the ground doing nothing, do that. You know, I don't know. But it is really, really interesting. Yeah. So why don't we roll, why don't we make this the last question? Yeah. And uh, Greg, I think, right? Yeah, hi Susan. Hi. Um, so a lot of us in here are high performers and we're driven and there's a lot of stuff that we want to do to build our businesses. And for me, I found that you mentioned control early on in your conversation. And um, I find that for a lot of driven, high-performing people, they like to strategize and plan to get that control. And so for me, my reaction to uncertainty sometimes is to not kind of let myself feel anxiety, but plan more and control more. And because a lot of that drive comes from feeling like I'm the locus of control, that I, I'm in pause, then I put that on me. And it's very hard to step back and say, uh, some things are out of my control and there is uncertainty. So I think it's important to have both the intention and be a plan for uncertainty, but I'm wondering if you have any advice or wisdom um, for times when it really is uncertain and um, how, to, how to kind of balance with both of those. And, and I guess the fear is that by giving into uncertainty and letting go of control, that I'll no longer be able to achieve and do and do things that make me feel valuable. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of questions in there, good ones. Uh, First... Glad glad to ask you, not me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am a very driven person, I would say, and extremely ambitious. So I'm not coming from some retreat monastic place, you know, when I'm answering this question, so just for what that's worth. Um, I think what I'm hearing in your question is, is there some way that I can acknowledge 
the truth of uncertainty and also plan to make some things certain because I have to or I want to? Is that, I, I, what I'm sort of thinking is, you're saying, is there a way to be sort of comfortable with some degree of uncertainty, but then, you know, pull some sort of parachute cord when that, when I have to actually get things done? Or things are really difficult? How do I cultivate an acceptance of uncertainty without sacrificing my ability to control um, what I can't control and get lost? I don't like I, I feel like there's a scenario where I can just be okay with uncertainty and go hang out and not do anything anymore. See, that, that there, right there, comfortable with uncertainty and then hang out and not do anything uh-huh. are not the same. So Jonathan's story is a perfect example of using uncertainty to, and he did happen to write a book about it, so um, (laughs) he embraced the sort of moment of this guy's attacking me, I don't know what to do, what's happening here? And then he opened to it and he saw the the truer underlying dynamic and was able to meet the situation much more effectively and directly and control it in a way that he could not have if he was kind of just trying to be okay with everything. So it was a profound tool for accomplishing control. So comfortable with uncertainty or embracing uncertainty, first of all, you don't have to worry about embracing uncertainty because my friends, I can tell you that it is embracing you constantly. <laughs> and if you ever become concerned, like, hey, where's my friend uncertainty? <laughs> well, she's right here. <laughs> so you don't have to try to embrace uncertainty. Instead, I would suggest notice you have to make up your own mind. Is it true that, uh, that everything is uncertain? So you have to notice in your own world, where is uncertainty? Where is certainty? What can I be certain of? Can I really be certain of it? Don't ever fall back on beliefs or, or Buddhist notions of, or any notions, but investigate for yourself. Where is uncertainty in my life? What can I actually control? And what can't I control? If you would allow me to disabuse you of the notion that re- relating with uncertainty is a kind of plunges you into a laissez-faire life because it actually does the opposite. It makes you capable of sharper, more certain movements on the spot. And when you're trying to control something that's threatening to go out of control, that sharp presence is uh, your best friend. So, uh, I love this conversation. That's um, fun. Thank you so much for sharing it. Yeah, every time we hang out, I learn more. I hope you guys have learned more. Thanks so much for joining in this week's conversation. You know. I'm just thinking, if you've actually stayed till this point in the conversation, I'm guessing there's a pretty good bet that you've gotten something out of this episode, some some nugget, some idea. If that is right and you feel like sharing, then by all means, go ahead. We love when you share these conversations and get the word out. And if you wouldn't mind, I would so appreciate if you would just take a few seconds, jump onto iTunes or use your app. And just give us a quick rating or review. When you do that, it helps get the word out, helps let more people know about the conversations we're hosting here, and it gives us all the ability to spread the word and make a bigger difference in more people's lives. As always, thank you so much for your kindness, your wisdom, and your attention. Wishing you a fantastic rest of the week. I'm Jonathan Field, signing off for Good Life Project.
This story is presented by Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA produced by ACAST Creative. 25 years ago, Invesco QQQ rethought the investing landscape by providing access to the NASDAQ's 100 most innovative companies all in one ETF. With Invesco QQQ, investors saw all the possibilities that innovation could deliver. Personally, I had a wake-up call in my 30s that led me to invest deeply in myself to unlock new possibilities. I walked away from a career as a lawyer, overhauled my lifestyle through mindset and exercise and nutrition, and completely reimagined my career. And it was unsettling at times, but that investment in my potential allowed me to live so much more creatively and with purpose and passion. Invesco is proud to sponsor the new Ways to Win podcast, hosted by longtime coaches and mentors Craig Robinson and John Calipari. So in Ways to Win, the coaches use their on-court wisdom to solve for off-court problems and help you find a winning formula for success. In this clip from the show, we'll hear Craig share his advice for weighing a decision to switch from investment banking to full-time coaching. Let's take a listen. The advice that I would give somebody who's weighing a decision that is less risky or more risky, I always tell them to work back from what they're wanting to accomplish right? What the reward is, what's at the end and work back and try and set yourself up to get to where you want to get to. Because sometimes taking a risk is the right thing to do to get something that you want. And what I try and counsel people to do is not be afraid to take risks. Because if you set yourself up properly with a good education, a great network of friends, and you've got family behind you, you can usually weather most storms if things don't work out the way you thought they'd work out. So listen to Ways to Win wherever you get your podcasts to get more wisdom from Craig. Nobody knows what's ahead, but one thing's for certain. You can access tomorrow's innovation today with Invesco QQQ ETF. Let's rethink possibility. So thank you for listening to this special story brought to you in partnership with Invesco QQQ and produced by ACAS Creative. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more defined investments. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco is not affiliated with ACAS Creative. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.